Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode today and I think a great opportunity for listeners to learn about an up-and-coming venture capitalist in the Chicago ecosystem. Austin Jew is a deal lead at Newstack Ventures and what that essentially means is if you're a founder coming to pitch Newstack about your early stage business, there's a good chance Austin will be the first one to hear your pitch and hear your vision. He plays a similar role that many junior and senior associates play at VCs across the country, but I think Austin has such a great perspective and view of the VC landscape right now. Prior to Newstack, Austin spent two years at Coefficient Labs where he helped early stage startups nail their customer acquisition and top line growth metrics through paid acquisition and product optimization. Throughout his time at Coefficient Labs, he worked with startups including a global rideshare service, an IoT smart home security system, and a millennial-focused e-commerce brand. All of these efforts and these experiences ultimately led Austin to venture capital and to Newstack in Chicago. With that, here's my conversation with Austin. Austin, welcome to Chicago Capital. Thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, great to be here. Matt, thanks for thanks for having me. Of course, pleasure is all mine. Are you currently in Chicago, or where are you where are you working from these days? Yeah, so I actually uh, went back to LA. I think in the November timeline, I was lucky enough to escape the winter. <laughs> it's a strategic and smart move by you. I actually <laughs> heard from our mutual friend Brandon Barish that you moved to essentially Chicago right when COVID hit. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's it's really funny. It was I, I think I moved maybe the first week of March. I got to spend maybe about a week and a half in the office and then never went back. So it's actually a funny story. I think on my second week on the job, Nick, my boss and I, we went to Columbia to do diligence on a company. Lots of their customers were there. And while we were there, that's when like the market crashed and that's when the US took the COVID situation very seriously. And it was interesting being in Columbia without any internet service and kind of seeing the world collapse and whatnot. And yeah, when we got back, we just never went back into the office. And so, yeah, my Chicago experience has been very interesting, to say the least. Incredible. That's an incredible story. So how about we back it up a little bit? How did you first get into venture? What's kind of your path? Yeah, I guess I could start with college. I went to school and I actually studied chemistry, uh, which is obviously very different from what I'm doing today. I'd say that like at the end of my college career, I had this kind of pivotal uh, moment where I was like, what am I going to do? I'm not exactly sure if I really enjoy chemistry. And I've got an older brother who's a data scientist and was really showing me the ropes when I was going through this pretty stressful time in my life. And yeah, kind of self taught myself some data analytics and some programming. And uh, that was my kind of first uh, entrance into startups and uh, tech in general. And so I was working at a startup called Coefficient Labs, their uh, growth marketing firm out in Santa Monica. And so their model was really interesting. They only work with other pre-seed and seed startups. And so I actually started there as a data analyst, quickly transitioned more into a growth role. And it was great exposure. I saw a bunch of different startups and a bunch of different industries and got to interact with these like really passionate founders. And one of my life philosophies is that you are the people that you surround yourself with. And I've been burned on that on both sides, right? I've been around some really uh, bad people and they've really slowed my growth. And on the other hand, really accelerated by just some amazing, passionate people and really gravitated towards that with these early stage founders. And so a lot of my job at Coefficient Labs was to analyze growth metrics, right? So whether that be like top line revenue or app downloads or just users in general. And I feel like you can't operate in the startup world, especially at that pre-seed seed 
uh, side of things without coming across investors. All these startups are really trying to survive and these founders are really looking to hit these metrics in order to get their next round of capital and whatnot. So uh, I just found that really interesting. My A lot of my work is really focused on growth, of course, and here are these investors also diligencing these companies, but also taking into account all these other variables. So business model, team, of course, the market size, just the potential in general. And so I realized my interest in startups wasn't just siloed in growth, but business as a whole. And so that kind of kicked off this very long path for me to try to break into venture. Certainly networked a bunch and listened to a bunch of podcasts and, and articles and whatnot. And I was lucky enough to join Newstack. So of course, we run a podcast as well. And it's actually a funny story. At the end of one of these episodes, Nick, uh, my boss, was talking about this role at Newstack. And that's how I found out about the role and, and applied from there. That's awesome. And I, the full ratchet is obviously it was the first VC podcast to to really start this trend that we've seen on the last seven years. They seem now there's VC podcasts everywhere, but the full ratchet definitely, I think, paved the way in a, in a lot of respects. Did you help out at all with the podcast when you joined the team? I feel like you have such a broad set of experiences from Coefficient Labs that not only were you able to plug into Newstack immediately and help these startups with their you know customer acquisition strategies and paid marketing strategies, but did you find yourself able to really assist with the podcast and getting the word out on that as well? Yeah, so not so much on the distribution side. Of course, there's always work that needs to be done on a, on a variety of different aspects. So we're a very small team and the podcast is a really big initiative for us. And so I wouldn't say that it's me specifically, but the team in general, I'd say that lots of my effort on the podcast really comes down to sourcing guests and making sure that we've got a full roster continuously and making sure that you know we're getting the best quality guests on for the podcast. I guess a bit more on your transition. What was that like going from a more marketing focused role to really put on putting on the lens of an investor? What was that learning curve like for you? Yeah, I, I think I maybe alluded to it a little bit beforehand. I was very focused on growth. And so even when I put on my investor hat today, lots of my questions and uh, my initial instinct is to go towards the growth side of things. And so it was interesting. There's definitely a learning curve to it. And I, I would very much still think that I'm learning, but uh, I think at least having that initial experience in growth, especially with pre-seed and seed startups, definitely aided in that transition. Pre-seed, seed startups. I know that's where Newstack really likes to focus. Can you talk a bit more about the types of investments that Newstack looks for, the thesis behind the fund? Absolutely. So Newstack Ventures is a seed fund based in Chicago. You know, I'd say that our check size is typically somewhere between 500K and a million dollars. And we typically like to lead those rounds as well. So when it comes to our thesis, we're a generalist firm. I'd say the, the only areas we stay away from are heavy life sciences and medical devices and really anything with kind of FDA and compliance regulatory concerns and processes. And so on top of that, we've got a thesis around undercapitalized markets and underrepresented founders. And so we really have this belief that there's a lot of value being created outside of just the coasts. And I think that all investors are after really strong talent. And I think that the way that we define talent is not necessarily based on pedigree in terms of like university. The typical founders that we see don't come from like Harvard or Stanford. They haven't worked at fame companies, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not just as qualified, if not more than some of these other founders that have. And so we really look for very strong founders that know their market really well. So they've got lots of domain expertise. And I don't think this is unique to us, but you know, we spend a lot of time diligencing the team and the way they think. So getting a very good understanding of their logic and their thought process and uh, being able to articulate why they went from A to B and B to C and 
really breaking that process down. I know this is such a maybe cliche question at this point, this far into the pandemic, but mm -hmm. I know you guys place such an emphasis on finding these kind of underrepresented founders who don't fit the traditional Silicon Valley mold. What has the process looked like for you guys over the last year, kind of having to do everything over Zoom, not getting as many you know in-person touches with the founders that you're potentially creating a 10-year relationship with. What was that you know, growing pain like for you guys, or did you make the transition pretty seamlessly? Yeah, I think we handled it very well. When this all happened, we, we took the very conscious effort to double down on deal flow. You know, I know there have been a lot of firms that want to you know, take a step back and see how things unfold. And I actually may not be the best person to ask about this because this is my baseline of how to do this job. And for me, I think it's been really interesting. Having these Zoom calls is a great way to, to get a lot of repetition in and have these back-to-back -back calls with not only founders, but other investors as well. And I think throughout the Zoom environment, you are you have to pick up on a lot of subtle cues that uh, come off through these just cameras. And so I think that this is just a hypothesis. When we go back into the real world, I'm expecting the diligence to be a lot uh, easier and there's just more variables and things to um, take into play and to account for. I think you're absolutely right. And I think everybody can agree that very anxious for the Zoom all day the schedule that we're on right now to maybe dissipate in the future. It's it's interesting. Like I know that Zoom had always been a big thing, even for VCs before the pandemic. And I think the one change that uh, I've noticed is phone calls were a lot were used a lot more back then. And now we're all switching to Zoom. I'm looking forward to, to having some more phone calls one day. It's, it can get very draining, just like staring into a camera all day. And do you guys have specific? geographies that you, you're just over, you would say over time, you've made more investments in? Or is it really, do you think you guys are truly geographic agnostic, except for, of course, the major hubs? I think our HQ being based in Chicago naturally lends itself well to receive a bunch of Midwest deals and whatnot. We are trying to make an active effort to be a little bit more agnostic. One of the big initiatives we have at Newstack is our fellowship. And we chose about 20 undergrad and graduate fellows and students across the U.S. and try to be a little bit conscious about where they're located and make sure that we're getting uh, good coverage across all parts of the U.S. No, that's a really interesting initiative you guys have. And I think it gives you a great talent pipeline as well that is, again, unique to Newstack. And something else that's unique to Newstack, and we've touched on this, we've mentioned the, the, the podcast, but I do see it as such a differentiator for you guys. It's such an integral part of your story. Was the strategy of being a very content-focused firm something that Nick started out with all those years ago when he set up the fund? And is that sort of been consistent throughout the time that you've known about Newstack? Has it always just been very content-focused? And that would be one of the ways, one of the primary ways you guys could differentiate yourself? I would say so. I think there's a lot of layers to this question, I think, and especially as a new and emerging firm where we don't have that track record to say that, hey, we've got amazing returns. We need to point to other sources and other proprietary initiatives that really give us the edge, especially when raising capital. And so the content through TFR really uh, acts as a strong pillar in that we're able to go to LPs and say, here's um, this blossoming podcast with lots of viewership. You know, we're able to get our thought leadership out there as well. And also acts as a very strong source of proprietary deal flow. This is slightly off topic, but what do you think about the current market for venture capital podcasts? I think in other areas of the economy, especially, you're starting to see more and more enterprises adopt 
the podcast as a you know marketing tool. But VC, I think, really did initiate that and and champion that. And mm-hmm. but you haven't seen the adoption as much in private equity, for example, and traditional financial services. But I know you're starting to see more of the professional services firms like McKinsey, BCG adopt the podcast as a marketing tool. So do you think it's just now at this point, VC podcast is a crowded market. Do you guys see more competition for TFR? How do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's definitely a competition in the market right now. And I think what it really originally stemmed from is the fact that uh, VC is still a black box. I think that a lot of the founders that I often speak to really don't know what the fundraising process is. They don't know what metrics they need to have in order to raise what amounts. And it still continues to be a very confusing process for many. Uh, I actually love the fact that there are a bunch of podcasts out there that are you know, specifically aimed to for founders to help them understand this process because, because yeah, it's very, it's very opaque. And I think there's a big need for more transparency. I completely agree. And that's, you know, partly the reason why, you know, I wanted to start my own podcast. I figured it's only beneficial to founders to have a better sense for the venture capital firms totally. in the Midwestern Chicago area that they're going to be pitching. And on that note, if I'm a founder and I'm pitching you at Newstack and you're a part of the deal lead team. So what does the total of the due diligence process look like at Newstack? What should I be expecting as a founder? Yeah. As a founder, if you're pitching Newstack, I'd say, first of all, we're a very transparent firm, right? So there's no harm in just asking what the process is and everyone on the team would be more than happy to lay it out. And so typically uh, it's a I'd say the five to eight week process from that first call to when things really get done. We'll typically jump on a pretty quick 20 to 30 minute call in the beginning just to really understand the founder and the market that they're building, but more so the why. I think there's a lot of times where we actually don't really cover much about the business at all, really. It's just to, to get to know each other and really understand the mission and the why. I'd say that if things dis- we decide to move forward from there, there's a lot of calls and uh, emails back and forth between myself and the founder or whoever is leading that deal, really. And uh, that really culminates in a investment committee pitch. And so by the time that happens, I'll have a very good grasp of not only the founder, but all aspects of the business. I'll write a pretty lengthy investment memo. And so our team will get together, really cover all aspects of the business, and really do a lot of pressure testing. I'd say if we decide to move forward from that point on, we'll move into partner meetings. We might have a subject matter expert call or a customer call at that point. And after a few of those, we'll go into negotiations and term sheet. So, I mean, in the future, you could explain that to founders when they ask, or you could just give some free marketing to Chicago Capital. <laughs> Absolutely. Point them towards this direction. Timestamp. What's the timestamp? Just direct them right here. So, you know, that's that's the due diligence process. After Newstack makes the investment, what kind of role do you guys like to play in your portfolio companies? Are you super involved and really trying to get into the weeds or do you try to be more of a network facilitator and build these startups network on a national scale? Yeah, no, I'd say this is uh, something that's always progressing and changing. I, I like to, I really like to think about ourselves as a startup as well. And the areas of portfolio support continue to change. I'd say the one thing that stays very static is our efforts on the fundraising and the future capital strategy side of things. As a pre-seed and seed investor, our feedback cycles are the longest essentially. And so the way that we really like to uh, quantify success is making sure that they're teed up nicely for that Series A. And so we've got a very broad network of uh, investors at that post-seed and Series A level. And so whenever a company joins our portfolio, we take the time to understand what are the metrics and milestones that uh, this company needs to hit 
And what are the founder types that those other investors will really get excited about? And so we're able to jump on the phone with them, establish contact and really develop a very catered plan and a roadmap to get to Series A. As seed investors, we really want that Series A round to be as competitive as possible so that those founders can once again choose the best strategic partner. So would you say that in venture capital, I think this is very unique about this asset class. I think that building your network is almost just as important as building your investing acumen. Would you agree? And and how do you balance that dual mandate that you have, especially at the more junior of levels where you really are responsible for the cutting edge of due diligence, but you also want to maintain you know, a strong network and vibrant network and grow that over time? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's really tough. I think if you ask anyone in this position, they're always really dealing with this constant issue of time management, right? There's always a million things to be doing, even outside of deal flow. And, and network is, of course, super important. We at Newstack are a very big fan of metric-based management. We set kind of goals regarding deal flow as well as network. And I think as soon as I joined the team, I, I set a pretty uh, aggressive goal of like at least 10 investor meetings a week and at least like 15 deal meetings a week. And so really just try to measure that over time. And when it comes to is network more important than diligence and building that up? I really do think so at the end of the day. Anyone could be a great picker. And of course, that's what's needed in this role. But access is really everything. And access to deal flow really comes through networks. At the end of the day, the best deals are, are pretty obvious, I would say, and they often get picked up and there's a lot of competition for them. Without access to those deals, all that goes out the window. And so I really think that investing in your network, especially early on, and, and building that is arguably more important. The diligence and uh, sharpening the diligence edge, that's something that can come over time. But the network is, is something that really can't be fast-tracked, I would say. And so it's really, really important to, to start that early and stay on top of it. I like that goal setting, the 10 meetings, and and I might steal that in the future. I think that's that's great. Back on the subject of due diligence, though, when we spoke in October, I, I loved the way you broke this down. When you're looking at due diligence, you've sort of grouped two main risks, execution risk and market risk. Could you talk a little bit about that philosophy and example of how you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I want to preface this by saying that none of this is original, right? I think <laughs> knowledge has no owner and, and pretty much everything I know is from other more smart investors than myself. When it comes to this, yeah, I, I think it's a great framework to use market risk as well as execution risk. If we think about something like market risk, I think companies that fit in this category like Twitch, Airbnb, and Uber, right? When those founders started on those businesses, no one believed that this was a market and therefore competition is super low. There's not a lot of experienced entrepreneurs entering this space. And so it lends itself well to newer, more green entrepreneurs because you're really first in that category. And so when you pit a new entrepreneur and an experienced one, you know, honestly, they've got pretty similar chances of a good outcome, right? Because yeah, no one really has that edge. And when it comes to execution risks, these are known problems in known markets. There's generally some sort of like operational efficiency at play or the problem is known. People know it's a problem. And so that obviously lends itself better to more experienced domain expert founders that have spent time in that space that know what's going on, you know, especially on these screening calls where we have to get through a lot of volume. I always try to understand what's the risk here at play. And, you know, does the founder background suit his herself to that type of risk? And has assessing that risk, I guess, is a broader question just about the nature of due diligence since you really started working in venture capital. Have you noticed any kind of acceleration of the timeline that you have to perform that type of analysis where now just the funding environment, 
is just super competitive and you don't maybe have the time that maybe your partners used to have at the firm and things have just sped up so much. Yeah, absolutely. I think this this kind of relates to the whole like time efficiency concept, right? Let's say that I spend two weeks diligencing one deal, but doesn't go through. I might as well not have spent two weeks doing that deal. Of course, there's a lot of benefit in terms of learning and whatnot, but because of that, it, it can be a bit demoralizing and a bit frustrating if you couldn't get there at the end of the day. And so it's really in our best interest to be able to move very quickly off these deals at almost like a first call, right? And so the general philosophy I have around this is I'm very liberal with my first meeting, but incredibly conservative with my second. I'm always willing to give entrepreneurs and founders a chance to pitch, and I'm always willing to assess the opportunity, but it's really got to be amazing or something that I'm really passionate about or want to move forward with and in order to get to that second meeting. And yeah, I think hopefully that helps. No, that's great. No, that's I think that's really helpful. And I think when we spoke again, when we spoke again last in October, we talked about at the time, there was a bit more uncertainty in the overall funding environment. There was a rise of bridge rounds. It felt like over the summer leading into the fall, maybe it was a bit tougher of a funding environment. Starting out 2021, now in February, where would you say as Newstack sees it, what do you assess as the health of the funding environment? Yeah, I think it's it's very strong. At the end of the day, I think we've really bounced back. I think every firm that I've spoken to that was a bit bearish in the beginning has has come back full swing. And I actually think we're in a bit of a bubble, right? There's a ton of private money chasing these companies. And I'm seeing more and more pre-launch, pre-revenue companies demanding crazy valuations. And so I think the interest is really high. And I think obviously the public markets are going on a bull run right now. And I think that inevitably is, is affecting the private markets as well. Do you guys see, do you feel that even from your perspective at Newstack where you're not focusing on the Silicon Valley or the coastal hubs where valuations I just think are historically and on average higher than Midwestern valuations? Do you still feel like there is a really strong creep up in valuations at this point? I do. And again, I might not be the best person to ask because I started in this environment, but I would say that even from when I started back in March till now, I am seeing a creep up in valuation. And yeah, so I would say that's accurate. I think it's something that we're seeing as well. But I wanted to talk about a company that is on a wave of success right now, rightfully so, I think, and happens to be a new stack portfolio company who's just raised their Series C of $30 million, which follows their Series B, which is only six months ago. Could you talk to us a little bit about what Tavala is? Of course. So Tavala is a you know food tech company that offers a meal kit uh, subscription paired with a smart oven. So there is a one-time hardware sale that is the oven and then a recurring subscription consumable on top. It really feels like their growth has exploded. I know their revenue grew tenfold in the last 18 months, and their employee count is up 40% in the last year. What do you think could be attributed to this really impressive growth rate they're on right now? Yeah. When we look at the meal kit competitive landscape, there are those that are in the blue apron bucket where they send raw ingredients and they're up to the end consumer to make them. On the other hand, there are uh, companies like Freshly that offer pre-made food and you just microwave and go forward. So I really think that Tavala has the best of both worlds. In the Blue Apron model, you're really dependent on that end consumer to create a delicious meal for themselves. And so that standard of quality is a bit variable. And of course, with Freshly, there's, I don't know if it's frozen food, but certainly not fresh. And so with Tavala, you've given this hardware oven, you're still given raw ingredients, but there's no time and there's no effort on that end consumer to create this 
hot, delicious meal. And that standard and quality is, is very consistent over time. And I think this might be just lending to SaaS in general. That initial sale uh, of that hardware is really the beginning of that relationship with consumer. And you know, that company has to deliver continuous value over time and always pursue this product market fit in order to stay competitive. Now, there's just a sunk cost fallacy that's in play when the hardware oven is purchased, so it's extra sticky, but Duval will have to continue to serve the needs of today and tomorrow. And so it's, I think their secret is really this convenience angle. I'm a proud user and, and owner of Tavala as well. And yeah, it's great. It's great. It's hot, delicious meals. And the fact that I don't really have to work to still get this great output, I, I think that's really key here. They had me sold when I opened up the app and I was able to use their AR to place the oven <laughs> in my kitchen. I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. So I was sold right there and then. Yeah, um, the QR code for other off-the-shelf microwave foods is super convenient as well. And yeah, the oven has got great flexibility in general. Yeah, I'm having David on the show hopefully very soon. And one thing I always found interesting was that they were a food company, a meal delivery company that was pairing itself with this piece of hardware. And I know that or I would imagine that might have been a challenge for them in the seed funding um, stage, convincing investors to look at them through the lens of both a tech company and a food delivery company. In your conversations, maybe with everybody at Newstack, what allowed you guys to really look at Tavala and say, we are comfortable with the hardware component of this. We're, we're just such believers in David and his vision. How did that you know, transpire? Yeah, with my conversations with the team, it really came down to, to first principles thinking. When we spoke to David and the reasons why he was building this and the gap he saw within the food or the, the meal kit delivery space, there's a clear gap when it comes to this convenience angle. And I think to talk on the hardware side of things a little bit more, the hardware side is, is a big part of our thesis. When Nick set out to build this firm in the beginning, he saw a funding gap in the Midwest when it came to deep tech and hard tech. <clears throat> These businesses, of course, are, are really capital intensive. And at that seed stage, when you know a product isn't out yet, many investors are not willing to take on that risk. And so I think it just goes to show that our diligence process is incredibly founder heavy, right? We are not a metric-based firm. We don't necessarily look to revenue or users in order for us to get conviction. And we believe that those are really more lagging indicators of success more than anything. And so when it came to David and Tavala in particular, I think it was really around the gap that he saw in the market, as well as uh, the amount of customer discovery he did in the space in general. No, and I think they've really found an opportunity in the food delivery space. And I can attest as a user, there is a absolute difference between the freshness that you're getting from that hardware versus just delivering something by mail, by overnight packages, and it's frozen and you're cooking it. And it's just, it's not the same. And I think they nailed the convenience component as well. So I think it's really a great um, story for you guys. And congratulations again on their Series C raise. Another great example of a Chicago Midwest uh, startup. And I think turning our attention towards the region, we've talked in the past about how the democratizing of capital across the country in the wake of COVID, Silicon Valley investors are now looking more towards the middle of the country, towards non-traditional cities and hubs as areas of potential investment. Do you think this trend is going to hold up even post-COVID? Do you think we're going to continue to see firms from San Francisco, from New York, from Boston, really focusing on Chicago and the Midwest? Is that something you're still seeing even to this day? Yeah, I think so. And me being a new entry 
entrant into Chicago, I might have limited experience here, but certainly, you know, I, I know that there are a bunch of firms that reach out to me and, and other Chicago VCs in general to take a look at what's going well and what's hot, especially when it comes to our portfolio companies. And I you know I think that serves as a, is one of their main sourcing channels as well, establishing good connections with VCs and seeing which of their portfolio companies do well, especially with COVID, everyone's moving outside of the Bay and other areas as well. I think the Bay will continue to be a really strong place of VC and entrepreneurship, but it's great to see talent go elsewhere. And, you know, I know Utah and Miami have been big hubs as well. And so, yeah, I think that trend will definitely continue. And I almost feel like there's a growth playbook in Silicon Valley that's been established now. And it's, it's very tried and true. And maybe it just has taken, it's taken time for that to materialize in other uh, geographies. But I really think that this is a really unique moment, an inflection point where other hubs are going to begin to develop their own sort of growth playbook and see success come from that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, I think one of the strong, strongest things about Silicon Valley and the Bay is just the density of the network. Not, it's not a big area, not a big city. And yet you've got such a dense mass of experienced entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. And it's really that network that's really led to all the success. And now everything is online and uh, a lot more democratized. I'm expecting to see those networks not necessarily get tied to just geographic locations. So you know, it's, it's a really exciting time to be in the space. And I think there's a lot of great things to come ahead. Coming from California, did you consider pursuing venture in Silicon Valley? I, I just think it's really fascinating that you decided to come to the Midwest and plant your roots here and begin your VC journey here. We talked about it a bit before, but maybe just walk us through a little bit more on that decision for you and you know how you chose Chicago. Yeah, I'll be completely honest here. For me, it was I was obviously interviewing in, in all parts of the country. And uh, especially as I was beginning this process, I was like, I'm definitely going to be either in LA or SF or New York City or something like that. And the more and more I spoke with different firms and whatnot, I was trying my, what I started to value in a firm changed quite a bit. And the big reason why I stuck with Newstack in, in Chicago in particular is just, or sorry, Chicago and Newstack in particular was just the team behind it. Again, I think I mentioned you are the people that you surround yourself with and having this kind of great access to Nick, who I think very highly of, and just the team in general, that was an opportunity I really couldn't pass up. There, we are still a very much a startup firm and having this kind of exposure to help build a kind of a great franchise that's already got a kind of a head head start within the Midwest. It just seemed like a great challenge and a great opportunity for me to grow and learn. And I think it was a great decision. This has been great. I, I have a few more questions that are of personal interest to me that I'm, I'm still trying to figure out on my own. Now that you've been in VC for a year, what do the first hour and the last hour of your day look like? Yeah, so this has definitely changed over time and COVID has not helped. I think even today, as I'm back in LA, my bed is two feet away from my desk and that's not a good thing. Um, There's a lot of sunshine coming through that window though. I gotta say it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's yeah. quite distracting. <laughs> These days... And this goes back to what we talked about just around like time management in general. I really, these days, am trying to reduce the amount of stimulus I get in general. So generally, the first hour and the last hour, maybe it's like half hour, is completely no technology. I try not to look at a screen as much as possible. And I think if you had asked me a year ago, I, I'm always trying to do multiple things and juggle multiple things. And so if I'm working out or even taking a walk or doing laundry or washing dishes. I'm like listening to an audiobook or listening to a podcast. And it's, it seems great. I'm, I'm multitasking. I'm being productive. I'm learning something. But I think an unfortunate uh, consequence to that is I'm like always trying to multitask. 
And so I can never really silo in and focus on one thing. And with so many tasks on my plate, I think the better I can focus on one task and get it done and run through it, the better. And so I've really been trying to just reduce the amount of stimulus I get in general and essentially reteach my brain how to focus on one thing and just focus on that one thing in general. And so really trying to stay off my phone as much as possible and just screens in general. And yeah, trying to work that into my daily routine more. I've always looked at podcasts as just this way to passively learn. And that's why I've loved them. But I do agree. I think if you're constantly plugged in, it makes it all that much harder to unplug and your home has become your office. That can be, I think, a recipe for exhaustion. (laughs) But on the topic of podcasts, obviously, aside from TFR, any other VC resources that you really leaned on when you were first learning about the industry that helped you get up the curb of understanding what stage did you want to be in and, and what sectors interested you and any great resources that you have used throughout your time? Yeah, I think How I Built This is a great one. The A16Z podcast is also great. They cover quite a range of topics. Invested Like the Best is also really interesting. Mike Gelb's Consumer VC, I thought was really cool too. I'd been a big fan of consumer investing in general, and that's actually starting to shift a bit, just given how tough it can be. And and Twitter in general, you know, Twitter can be a very big time suck, but also I probably learned the most from like just random, very short tweets. So I'd say those are my main go-tos. This idea and venture of the delayed feedback that you and everybody deals with. How do you think about that? Looking at your career, managing around that sort of delayed feedback loop. Yeah, it's definitely tough. It goes back to the whole example I gave of if you spend two weeks on a deal and it doesn't get done, should you have spent two weeks on that? And the there's, of course, a lot of learnings that go on the side, right, that, that aren't encapsulated by just doing a deal or not doing a deal. A friend and a peer of the space, Jessica Lee, actually wrote this great piece on when she was leaving VC and how she dealt with this feedback loop. And, and it, it was great. Part of it I incorporated, but it also goes back to this idea of metric-based management, measuring what matters. You shouldn't just be measuring if you get deals done or not. And so being able to measure, am I asking better questions during these calls? Am I getting to conviction quicker? How long is it taking for me to get from A to B? These are all things that you can measure that obviously aren't tied to the end goal of doing a deal, which is really what matters or really what matters. But there's a lot of upstream signals that you can track. Again, being very quantitative about it is, I think, the goal. Because if you were just going off anecdotes and qualitative things it could be it can be frustrating and you can't really know if you're making any improvements that's so helpful i think um i love that answer and this has been great i i do want to throw one more in there because i'm now at the bottom of my bin in terms of what to watch any movie tv recommendations anything you've seen recently you're in la you're in the heart (laughs) of that world so do you have anything for us i do it's called halt and catch fire so it's a netflix show that kind of follows the tech revolution in its early stages. So it follows actually the, the story of compact computers and you know just that the computer revolution, it's, it's also a drama, so it's, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but it's great, especially from a, coming from a tech perspective, I definitely recommend. It, it goes into the, the earliest adoption of freemium software and subscriptions in general, and just a great show in general. That's a great recommendation. It's something I knew it was on AMC at one point and I just yeah. never checked it out. But that's a great 
that's a great recommendation. I just finished Silicon Valley. I started it in college and I just lost track of it over time, but I made the effort to finish it and loved it and looking for something of the similar vein. This is sounds somewhat similar, obviously not a comedy, no Ehrlich Bachman, but that's a great recommendation. Austin, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really love this and hope you can come on sometime soon, maybe when you're back in Chicago, maybe in the summer when it's just as sunny in Chicago as it is in LA right now. Let's yeah. shoot for that. Thank you, Matt. It's It's been great being here and thank you for having me. It's always like talking. And if people want to find you and, and follow you, follow Newstack more, uh, where can they find you? Yes, you can email me at austin at newstack.vc. I've got a Twitter that I'm not very active on. It's Austin Jupiter, but yeah, email is probably best. Awesome. All right, great. Thanks, Austin. You have a great rest of your day in sunny California. All right, take care, Matt. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.